Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, many of the students are back in the classroom after a year of virtual learning due to the pandemic. I'll speak with Emory University professors specializing in pediatrics and psychiatry about the mental and behavioral health issues some kids may experience as they return to school, and also what parents and teachers can do to best support them. And we'll meet Amber Lawson, founder of Aspire Construction and Design. She's working with black women entrepreneurs who are opening their first or second commercial real estate space. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first this, we want to tell you about a programming note because at the time of this broadcast, President Joe Biden will deliver remarks on Afghanistan today. The president's address is scheduled for 3.45 p.m. Now, earlier today, the United Nations Security Council held a special call meeting regarding the events in Afghanistan as Taliban forces have taken over the city of Kabul. Now, here's current U.N. Security Council President T.S. Taramuti of India. It is time for the international community, in particular this council, to act and ensure an immediate cessation of violence and contain any possible crisis and mitigate its consequences. As a neighbor of Afghanistan, as a friend of its people, the current situation prevailing in the country is of great concern to us in India. Afghan men, women, and children are living under a constant state of fear. They are uncertain about their future. And again, President Joe Biden will deliver remarks on Afghanistan Today, WABE will carry NPR's coverage, which is scheduled to begin at 3.45 p.m. In other news, as it continues to be, a rise in COVID-19 cases is taking a toll on some Georgia school districts. Ware County Schools is suspending classes until September 7th due to an increase in cases. According to the district, since school began about two weeks ago, 76 of its 5,000-plus students have tested positive and 279 are quarantined, and that was on Friday. Also, 67 Ware County employees have tested positive for the virus and 150 are quarantined. Masks were optional in the district. Now, Ware County will not hold online classes either, but extracurricular activities such as sporting events will continue, according to a statement on its Facebook page, where County Schools sees, quote, participation in extracurricular activities is both voluntary and critical to the overall social and emotional health of students, close quote. Now, according to the State Department of Public Health, Ware County has a 29% vaccination rate. And Long County Schools in the southeastern part of Georgia is also suspending in-class instruction until further notice, but they will move their classes online. The district says it will reevaluate in September to determine whether students can return after Labor Day weekend. Now, the Long County School System recommended students and staff wear face masks throughout the school day, but masks were only required when riding the bus or moving around the building. Long County's overall vaccination rate, 15% fully vaccinated. Over in Fulton County Schools, officials say they've come up with a solution for parents unhappy with the district's mask mandate and those who don't think in-person learning is safe, even with the mask. The district says it plans to open a mask-optional campus for students in grades K-8. through Cliff Jones is Fulton County's chief academic officer. Also, students may choose to participate in extracurricular clubs and activities at their home school and be expected that they follow the mitigation practices in place at their home school as they participate. Now, for those families who don't want to send young kids back in person, Fulton plans to launch a virtual option for students in grades K through second. Both plans will depend on officials' ability to staff them. If they're able to, the district plans to have both up and running 
by September 7th. Meanwhile, Georgia hospitals are filling up with COVID patients as nearly 4,300 people are now hospitalized after contracting a virus. That's more than during last summer's peak and quickly approaching the winter high of 5,700 COVID hospitalizations. Now, Governor Brian Kemp has scheduled a press conference later today to outline steps to support hospitals and encouraging state employees to get vaccinated. The highest rates remain in South Georgia, with the Delta variant quickly moved up from Florida this month. But even in the Atlanta region, about a quarter of all hospital patients now have COVID. Of course, WAB News will keep you updated on all of this. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Early this year, shortly after the Pfizer vaccine was made available for teens, I had a conversation with Dr. Jane Wilkov, the founder of DeKalb Pediatric Center. Now, she had a lot to say about the state of the mental health of kids after living through the pandemic for more than a year. The impact may not have been on the hospitalizations and the death rate that we've been hearing about for a year. But the emotional impact for these kids has just been beyond enormous. Mm-hmm. Um, the academic, missing school, missing friends, missing life cycle events, graduations, proms, um, last, last year, summer camp, summer activities, work, seeing their grandparents. So as pediatricians, we've seen less and less illness as people are socially distanced and isolated and more and more mental uh, health issues. We've probably talked about and prescribed more things for anxiety and depression than we did antibiotics in the, in the last year. For teens. For teens. For teens. Yeah. It's wow. changed the whole shape of the practice. Um, there's not a day that we're not dealing with uh, issues that teens and even younger kids are uh, experiencing. So anxiety, depression. Um, I know you eating disorders. Um, Weight gain, weight loss, social isolation, um, fighting with their parents that when they've been home, cooped up with them. Hmm. Now, as kids and teens are returning back to school for in-person class instruction, school procedures have changed a lot. We know that. And many students are having to adjust and adapt. Dr. Vita Johnson is a professor of pediatrics at Emory School of Medicine and the executive director of Partners for Equity in Child and Adolescent Health. And I'm also joined by Dr. Jennifer Holton, an assistant professor of medicine and program director for Emory's, for Emory's Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellowship Program. And they both join me now to talk about all of this, the mental and behavioral health issues that some kids may face as they return to schools. And what we all can do as parents, as teachers, as aunties, as I am, welcome to both of you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. I want to begin with uh, what you all make of what what one of your colleagues had to say there in that clip. And Dr. Holton, I'll start with you. Uh, Anything you disagree with or you agree with everything she had to say there? No, I absolutely agree with what she had to say. There was actually uh, an article published this this month, actually, in JAMA Pediatrics that was a meta-analysis looking at rates of clinically clinical rates of depression and anxiety in youth and the rates have doubled in this past year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I absolutely agree with her that the mental health impacts have been tremendous. We already had, you know, lots of mental health mm-hmm. issues with young people, but this past year has, has seen those rates increase. Mm-hmm. Dr. Johnson, your take? No, I agree a hundred percent with what has been said, you know, um, I think what's important which we've just 
briefly mentioned is that none of this is new, right? We've been seeing this sort of trend over the past few years with a lot of issues around grief and loss and anxiety and depression, suicidality, and especially trauma, uh, and especially for children of color, uh, LGBTQ uh, community, adolescents and young children. And what COVID has done is just really, sh it shed a really bright light on, on these longstanding problems. And, you know, and in many ways it's really exacerbated it. So as Dr. Holton has said, we've seen an increase in anxiety and depression, um, but we also have seen a significant increase in grief and loss, which we don't really focus as much on as we should, because mm -hmm. you know children have lost a lot of tens of thousands of children have lost loved ones loved ones to COVID. So there's an increase in grief and loss. Well, Dr. Johnson, let's stay with that for a moment because that's actually exactly where I'm going next. It is estimated. Maybe 40,000 to 50,000 children in the yes. U.S. have lost a parent to COVID-19. At the same time, you know, you, 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 you combine that with some of the wraparound services and community and just regular school support that kids were getting at school. And this is, as you all both, as everyone has said, this has just amplified what some of our, our youngest population, what they're, what they're dealing with. Dr. And Dr. Johnson, you said maybe enough hasn't been paid attention in terms of to the grief and loss that these kids have dealt with. Right, because, you know, we naturally focus on, you know, the symptoms of anxiety and depression, which can be a symptom of grief and loss and not really address the problem at its face value. Mm -hmm. And I think as children return to school, we, we're going to have to be really, really sensitive to children who are sad, who are withdrawn, who really can't participate in the level that they previously were able to participate in and be able to wrap our arms around them, have conversations with them, have mental health interventions for them that really focus on grief and loss, in addition to all the other things that these children are dealing with, such as depression, such as anxiety, such as obsessive compulsive disorders, all of these things that have been exacerbated since the, since the crisis. Let me ask you this, and Dr. Johnson and Dr. Holton, both of you can address this. Do you think then that the schools should, if they aren't aware, maybe try to be aware of those students who have lost a parent or lost a caregiver or, or lost someone in their household to this virus, I don't know how they could probably do that, but might that add to what some of the then the, the educators and the school districts can offer to these kids, uh, Dr. Holton? I think it certainly would be helpful to know that, right? I mean, definitely children who have lost a loved one to COVID are going to be experiencing this transition back to in-person school in a very different way than children who didn't experience that loss, right? That's tremendously huge. So if there is some way to identify those children, I think it's important because you really do want to pay even closer attention to those children. Dr. Holden, let me st stay with you then. For someone listening that says, well, how do I even know? Because, and I want to be fair, I don't want all the teenagers getting mad at me. Because, you know, teenage teenage years are <laughs> interesting year, we all know. So how, what should they be looking for? Uh, you also don't want to, just because a teen doesn't want to, take out the trash because normally they don't want to anyway. Um, you don't want that to someone to misinterpret that as a sign, but what should folks look for? Is there anything that's really identifying that you and Dr. Johnson can offer here? I think in general, if you're noticing that, that someone is either more withdrawn than usual, kind of shut down, not talking as much as they normally would, um, they're more moody or, or sad, um, you know, Depression and, and anxiety in, in young people can look more irritable even than, than sad or anxious necessarily. Mm -hmm. So if they're acting out more, um, or if you notice changes in appetite, um, concentration, um, difficulty with sleep, even physical complaints, right? When kids mm -hmm. are, are not doing well in terms of their, their mental well-being, they also often complain of physical things like stomach aches, headaches body aches, those kinds of things. So I think any of those, especially if you're seeing multiple of those things, can can alert you to the fact that, that maybe something's um, going on in terms of this child's mental well-being. Dr. Johnson, what would you like to add to that? Is Dr. Johnson, are you with me? I think, are you live with us? I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. I don't know how you mute yourself. <laughs> uh, so, so in terms of what schools should be looking for, very similar symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. I think they should focus a lot, though, on inattentiveness and lack of focus. Um, again, sadness and withdrawals, as well as anger, aggression, and fear. 
And um, and those are just, you know, sort of like the underpinning of the um, overwhelming emotion that comes from grief and loss. Hypervigilance from children who have been traumatized, as well as a lot of physical reactions as well, as Dr. Holton says. You know, I've worked in schools um, through school-based health centers, and I've seen a lot of somatic complaints associated with um, emotional disturbance, such as headaches mm -hmm. and stomach aches and worsening of their chronic health problems. I think we should be looking uh, for all of these things. And in the context of the school, you know, I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's going to be a real challenge, right? Mm -hmm. Because the focus is going to be on how do you um, bridge this educational loss that children have experienced. But at the same time, you've got to understand that they bring all of this into the classroom and there's no way you could actually teach children without addressing all of these really important issues. And, and, you know, and I have to say, you asked a question about, you know, you think, do you think schools can do this? You know, mm -hmm. what are they doing? You know, I'm really pleased um, to state that many schools in the state of Georgia have been preparing for this. They, they, they are anticipating it and they are trying to provide really robust wraparound services for children. In mm -hmm. addition to having mental health and physical health um, services, but they're also looking at helping children with their basic needs like uh, food pantries and clothes mm -hmm. and, and uh, clothing uh, um, supports and and uh, school supplies and all those things that children need that's tied in with not only uh, the loss of, of parents who can provide these things for them, but just the, the nurturing and support that they need in order to, to do well in school. Dr. Johnson, and I think Dr. Holton might have mentioned this too, you, in, in that list you gave, you talked about fear. Could you take that mm -hmm. a little further for our listeners? What do you mean by that? And we talk about fear being a sign here, potential sign. Well, you know, the children, we're all fearful right now, right? Everyone's fearful because of this pandemic. Uh, but children sort of process the fear a little differently, right? Because it's sort of rooted in something that is, that's sometimes uh, not tangible for them, right? So the fear of the insecurity that they, that they find themselves in. A lot of these children, are, you know, are dealing with uh, housing insecurity, uh, food insecurity, having their basic needs met, watching fear from watching the consequences of being um, um, clustered, you know, with families. There's been a lot of domestic violence that's taken place over the past 18 months. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, by the end of last summer, there was a 30% increase in domestic violence worldwide. We think that children are being subjected to a little more um, increased frequencies of child abuse, even though it's been underreported because schools are the number one reporting. Uh, institutions uh, regarding child abuse. So we really are not seeing those numbers rise. But children are just fearful of just all of the ramifications that go along with COVID. Dr. And I'll have to say that this has been in place, you know, prior to COVID, but it mm -hmm. just really has been exacerbated by the pandemic. Dr. Holt, do you want anything to that in terms of fear here? I think Dr. Johnson said it really well. I mean, I think sometimes in children, right, fear, fear can look like it does in adults with us kind of feeling, you know, them verbalizing anxieties, fears, worries, but a lot of times they aren't able to put those things into words. And so with younger kids, sometimes that comes out right in their behavior. And, and sometimes that can look more like oppositional, defiant, acting out, aggressive kind of behavior, but it's just them, right, trying to deal with these internal things that they're struggling with. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Jennifer Holton. She's an assistant professor of medicine and program director for Emory's Child and Adolescence Psychiatry Fellowship Program. I'm also joined by Dr. Vita Johnson, a professor of pediatrics at Emory School of Medicine and executive director of Partners for Equity, Equity in Child and Adolescent Health. I want to talk about our behavior as adults and, and how we react and deal with this and its impact on, on our youth, on our kids. You know, the little ones love to emulate us <laughs> as well as they do. But how important is how we react as adults, whether we're parents or, you know, caregivers or aunties or what have you. But also at the same time, being mindful that you want to be, if possible, as, as honest as you can. Um, or do you have to sort of measure that depending on the age of the, of the, of the person here? Dr. Holton? I think you're you're right on, right? That that kids learn the most in terms of modeled behavior from adults in their lives. So our response is really important, and I think it is important to to be open with children. I mean, I would ideally sort of make sure that you're able to spend some time with children and ask open-ended questions about how they're feeling, so that they can start to to put those feelings into words. And then once they do, right, we want to 
validate that, normalize it, right? This is a big transition. Of course, you might be feeling nervous, right? I'm feeling nervous too. Um, you want to temper that, right? You don't want to ideally have a full-on panic attack and, you know, burst into tears, you know, in front of your child because you want them, you want to communicate your anxiety as well, but you want to do that in a way of, I'm feeling anxious too, and we can do this together, right? And so we can talk about it together and we can problem solve together and we can think about ways to get through this. Um, so I think you you want to definitely express your own feelings and thoughts, um, but you want to kind of do that in a, in a measured way if possible. Speaking of a measured way, uh, Dr. Johnson, what's what would be a measured way? What do you think? Well, you know, <laughs> that, that's a great um, question because as, as Dr. Holden was talking, I was thinking about, you know, the challenges that adults are facing and especially um, families from lower socioeconomic mm -hmm. um, status, right? And we do focus a lot on, you know, providing a safe, nurturing, supportive environment for children. And, you know, and families, you know, it's even when they're under stress and when they're dealing with a lot of these challenges have to find a way to, to insulate their children as best they can. But it's also important to be open uh, about their fears and to talk about, you know, potential solutions so children won't be overtaxed by it. But I think what we're missing sometimes is that our families need as much support as the children need. Mm -hmm. And even though we need to be as measured as we can regarding how we relate to them and express our concerns, they need to get the help that they need as well. And so we have to consider it as an important factor in improving the mental, overall mental health for children is, improve, is improving the mental health of their parents. We all know. And I know it's not lost on Dr. Johnson or Dr. Halton that when we talk about just overall basic health care, insurance, access to health care, and definitely when we talk about access to mental health resources, I've had so many conversations about on that about in, on this program. So we all know that, that there are barriers to be, depend on your ethnicity, your socioeconomic income. We know that. We've talked about what the school's are doing, but also, you know, once the kids are, are in their households, what resources are out there, especially for those households that are at no insurance or underinsured, you know, where can folks turn? So, um, another great question, right? It's a huge challenge nationwide. The lack of mental health providers to lack of access, especially for people who don't have insurance. Uh, but we do have some resources. So mm -hmm. you have some of the federally qualified health centers or the community health centers. The majority of them have behavioral health services, and they um, do not deny anyone care based on the inability to pay, to pay. We have our community service boards where adults can go, which really focuses primarily on with adults, but not necessarily with children. Uh, we have a really robust school mental health program in our state, the APEX program that's uh, administered through the Department of behavioral health and developmental disabilities that places mental health providers in schools to work with children directly. And, um, and again, if children are not covered, they still provide that service for those children. And right now, I think they're in about uh, 560 schools statewide. Do you think people know about this? Do you think not as much as not to the extent that they should No, uh, but I think there's a big push statewide to address mental health across the board, right? And there's a lot of work that's being done in the in, uh, with our state agencies, Department of Public Health, the Department of Behavioral Health and Development Disabilities, uh, academic institutions, multi, uh, private providers, uh, 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 organization or um, divisions uh, that like Dr. Holton, I mean, so we're, there's a push to sort of emphasize mm -hmm the prevalence and the need for mental health services. Dr. Holton, I now have an email that popped up here and a listener wants to know, I just asked a question, but about your program, what are you, what can you all offer the community here? I think Dr. Johnson's point was really important, right? That there, the needs are great, right? And the resources, we do have a lot of resources in Georgia. And at the same time, our resources are stretched. They were stretched before the pandemic, mm -hmm. but they're more stretched now, right? Um, at Emory, we do have a, a clinic here um, in our child and adolescent psychiatry division. But again, right, we we sort of are are frequently maxed out at our capacity as well. Um, we're always, you know, trying to get as many children through as possible. 
Um, but resources are stretched right now, I think, across mm. the state. Um, and some of these some of these options that Dr. Johnson was talking about, especially the school resources, I think are, are really tremendous. Um, there's also the Georgia Crisis and Access Line. So regardless of whether you have insurance or any ability to pay, they'll they'll sort of talk to you about what's going on with your child and try to help you think about resources and options in your particular area. So even if you're not in the Atlanta area, if you're somewhere else in Georgia, um, they can kind of help you think through different options, which I think is a really wonderful resource that we have here. I have a question from a listener who wants to know, how do you get your teenager to open up? I know this is... That's, that's another session, but I'll let you all take a crack at it. Uh, Dr. Johnson, how do you get the teens to open up? And I know each case is individual, but. <laughs> it, it is. And it depends on, you know, your, you know, the family dynamics prior mm-hmm. to this, right? So yeah. communication is key. Yeah. It, it always is, you know, from the time that they're small to the time they're adolescents. And to give them space and not to infringe upon them, you know, your opinion or, you know, your concerns initially, but just to give them opportunity to, to speak and express themselves in a meaningful way. Um, and, you know, you know, teenagers are teenagers. Um, they have a tendency, of course, to, to go to their, to look to their peers yeah. for a lot of, um, uh, of information that they need. Uh, but when you have, you know, like I said, start when you're young, when you, when you have this sort of uh, relationship where you're always talking about things, you're always open about things. Mm-hmm. And when you really need to be open and communicate, it's much easier. Well, let's talk about peers. And I know I have some teens who listen to this program. If you're, you got a buddy out there and perhaps you are noticing some of those signs that y'all talked about earlier, as a peer, as a fellow, you know, student, friend, what, what can they do? How should they help? Dr. Holton? I think one thing is, is to be mindful that, you know, you are also a teenager, right? It is not your responsibility to try to fix this for the other person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is important not not to feel like you're alone in this, right? To reach out to an adult that you trust, whether that's a parent, whether that's somebody in the school system, a counselor in the school system, but, but reach out, right? And talk to somebody about what's going on so that you can also get support as you support your friend. As we wrap up, and Dr. Halton, I'll start with you. And we, when we began this conversation, we talked about the statistics out there, particularly as it relates to kids who might have lost a parent or suffered some loss or grief. What is that one lasting message you do want to live with listeners as it relates to our young folks and what they possibly be dealing with during this pandemic? What's that message you want to leave them with? I think perhaps the most important thing, right, is just to, as much as you can, to try to keep communication open with with children, whether you're the teacher, whether you're the parent, whether you're a relative, but just to try to try to be open and listen. And when that child or that young person talks to you about something, right, we have this tendency to want to fix it immediately or or discount it and say, no, 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 you're okay. But really just listen and validate and try to try to make sure they they know that you hear them mm-hmm. and you understand before you problem solve with them, but then move on to that problem solving piece. Dr. Johnson, I'll give you the last word. I think we should be really mindful to be looking for um, these behaviors and for these issues that children are facing and not overlook it as we are dealing with our own struggles and that, you know, um, we are, you know, incredibly important <laughs> when it comes to being able to um, address the needs of our children, but also realize that we're all in this together and we're all experiencing very, very similar things and that we need to uh, reach out to one another to garner the support in in, in order to care for our children, but also to take care of ourselves. All right, Dr. Vita Johnson, Professor of Pediatrics at Emory School of Medicine and Executive Director of Partners for Equity in Child and Adolescent Health. And I was also joined by Dr. Jennifer Holton, an assistant professor of medicine and program director for Emory's Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Fellowship Program. Both join me to talk about the mental and behavioral health issues that some kids may be facing as they return to school. And also what we all can do as parents, teachers, and aunties can best do to support them. Thank you both for taking the time. Good information. As always, a note of disclaimer, we encourage all, all of you out there to make sure you consult with your own primary care, mentor, or physical uh, representative for your family. And if you don't have one, We will have links to all those programs that Dr. Johnson and Dr. Holton listed on our website. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having us.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Recently on the program, in fact, last week, we devoted an hour to climate change here in Georgia. WABE environment reporter Molly Samuel gave us a preview of a story she was working on. It was about urban heat. And here's what's a fact. Heat is dangerous. It's the number one weather-related killer in the United States. And cities are hotter than rural areas. So scientists in Atlanta are working to get a more detailed understanding of which neighborhoods here are the hottest to find solutions for the most vulnerable communities. So, as promised, here's Molly Samuels' report. When Chloe Kernicki leaves her house near Georgia Tech, she takes the temperature wherever she walks. This is the sensor itself. She has what's basically a very fancy thermometer that she clips onto her bag. It records the temperature as she goes, noting when and where it's hotter or cooler as she moves around her neighborhood. And then should we go ahead and start walking? Or Okay, yeah, we can head out to 14th Street. Kernicki graduated from Tech this past year, and over the summer, she's helping out on this project called Urban Heat ATL to map how hot it is in parts of Atlanta, street by street. She's one of dozens of students who have volunteered to participate. As she walks, Kernicki takes note of her surroundings. There's so many roads converging and all these gas stations, and so just a lot of concrete right now. This like super dark parking lot. What she finds as she walks around would probably be familiar to lots of us in Atlanta in the summer. Smaller streets with trees shading the sidewalk are cooler to be on than big streets with lots of lanes surrounded by parking lots. I grew up here. I know how hot it gets. The phenomenon called the urban heat island effect has been known for decades. Cities are hotter than rural areas because they have more dark, hard surfaces like concrete in buildings and fewer trees and other plants. The project this summer, which is led by professors at Spelman College and Georgia Tech, is about getting into the nuances of Atlanta's heat island. Yes, the city is hot, but which neighborhoods are the hottest? Which populations are most vulnerable and most impacted? Nataki Osborne-Jelks teaches environmental and health science at Spelman. She says in other cities, studies have shown that historically black neighborhoods also tend to be the hottest. We know that there are certain populations that are disproportionately affected. For Atlanta, they don't know yet. So that's why they're doing this project, to find out and figure out how to help. That's the whole point. Sadiqa Murphy is a student at Spelman. Right now we're just gathering the data to see where the issues are. And then from this project, we can see, okay, what are the methods that we can employ to, you know, assist with being a part of the solution. Murphy says people with chronic health conditions are more susceptible to the effects of extreme heat. And not everyone in Atlanta has AC or can afford to run it all the time, even if they do have it. And heat is dangerous. According to the National Weather Service, over the past 30 years, heat has been the leading weather-related cause of death in the U.S., ahead of tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, and cold temperatures. Then there's climate change making heat worse. Kim Cobb is a climate scientist at Georgia Tech. When we start talking about climbing up the thermometer to higher and higher and higher records, longer and longer and longer heat waves, we're going to be experiencing that in the urban core as an exaggerated effect, if you will, uh, because of these urban heat islands. In the southeast, nighttime temperatures have also been going up, which is dangerous because it's harder for people to cool off after a hot day. It's really what happens when the lights go out and it's still baking. Some ideas to help people survive extreme heat could be around helping people afford to run their air conditioners or make their homes more energy efficient. Jelks, the Spelman professor, says revising Atlanta's tree ordinance to protect more big trees would help. Her Nikki, the volunteer from Georgia Tech, says participating in the project has changed her perspective. This is all stuff that I've learned about. But I hadn't really, I guess, connected it to my like daily experience. Once she finishes her walk around her neighborhood, she uploads the temperature information she collected and packs up her sensor. <laughs> Next time I walk around, I'll do it again. Meanwhile, another Atlanta heat mapping project is getting started later this summer, using cars to drive all over the city in a single day temperature gathering event. That effort, led by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and Spelman College, is looking for volunteers now. All combined, these projects will give Atlantans a much better understanding of where it's hottest and who's most vulnerable at a time when it's already hot and will keep getting hotter. Molly Samuel, WABE News.
And it is WABE Environment Reporter Molly Samuel. And you can find a link to Molly's report as well as other related stories online at WABE.org slash environment. Closer Look returns in a moment. And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Now, last week on the program, we told you about a retail recruitment incubator initiative to help business owners move into their own space. It was spearheaded by the Decatur Downtown Development Authority. I spoke with Shirley Bayless, the downtown program manager for the city of Decatur, and she talked about who's eligible to apply. Anyone who's interested can go to Decatur, DDA, or Downtown Development Authority forward slash incubator. So they can go there and they can apply and uh, put in their application. So that one, they will have, have to have been in business at least two years. They will um, need to um, have their PL and financial statements for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, we will also ask that they also um, provide us with, you know, their, their, license for whatever city and county they're in right now, mm-hmm. um, registrations, things that they may have to have with the state. We want them to attach that to the process. Uh, we are saying that you have to have 10 or less employees. So, and that includes the owner themselves. And that's, um, and that's kind of some of the general things there as they, as they get into the application, there's some more detailed things that are requested and asked of them. Now, we should note that the application process to apply is now open online, on the, as she mentioned, on the Decatur Downtown Development Authority website. My next guest is also doing something to help other business owners, Amber Lawson. She's a general contractor and the principal and founder of Aspire Construction and Design. Amber Lawson joins me now to talk about her company, her journey, and how she's using her skills, expertise to help other women entrepreneurs. And since last week I talked about my hotel for Wayward Cats, I'm sure Amber now can help me with that since many of you emailed and made fun of me. That's okay. Amber, welcome to the program. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose. It's a pleasure and an honor to be uh, with you today. Everyone has an origin story. What got you interested in the real estate development, design, and construction business? What's this journey been like? You know, it was a circuitous journey. I started out as a property manager and just realized that the only part of the job that really got me out of bed in the morning was making a space new, building something different than what was there yesterday. So I decided to pursue that full time and um, did that. And then Aspire Construction and Design was born four years ago. Aspire Construction Design, how often are you seeing folks that look like you, women, other women as well, in this industry that are owners? (laughs) I threw that in there. Yes, yes. Interestingly enough, you know, there's an organization, National Association of Black Women in Construction, Mm -hmm. um, of which I am a board member. And there is quite a few of us. Um, You would be surprised. Um, We are small in number, but we are mighty. When you say small in number and, and are mighty, how important is it that even if you are small but mighty, you are able to help and obviously maybe even inspire other women to get into the business? You know, design, construction, architecture, engineering, it is such a STEM-focused industry. And as you know, and other people know, STEM-focused industries are uh, ones that are ripe for growth now and in the future. So being able to see someone that is out there doing it already is clearly Um, an incentive and a a door opener. Um, To that end, um, I've partnered with Atlanta Technical College on a few projects Mm -hmm. and brought some people that look like me um, onto some job sites to give them some on-site experience. Overall, how many years of experience do you have in real estate development, design, and construction, Amber? 22 plus. Wow. Now, we should know we just had Pinky Cole on the program. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there is a connection there because you you help build out 
part of the the new Slutty Vegan on Edgewood Avenue in Atlanta, correct? That is correct, yes. How cool is it when you get to work with other women-owned businesses here? You know, the beautiful thing about being in this space and being who I am, um, you know, like attracts like, and over 95% of my clients are Black women entrepreneurs. Um, And to be honest with you, I have seen an uptick in the number of Black women that have been approaching me and looking to open up businesses. We're talking about salon suites, restaurants, um, offices. Um, I'm even working on a beauty school at the underground. Um, So the women here in Atlanta, they are here. They are ready to, you know, go out there and take the risk and be entrepreneurs and uh, Aspire is helping them move into those physical spaces, designing and building them. Let's talk about that. You, you're helping. But how often do you tell your story? And I, I don't know if you had any struggles or, you know, maybe some challenges along the way. But do you tell that to some of these women to help them understand that, what could, you know, not to scare them, but be realistic? Sure. So I got to tell you, um, entrepreneurs that are coming to me, once they get to the stage where they are ready to spend significant dollars on commercial real estate, whether that's leasing it or purchasing it, they have already been through the trenches, Mm -hmm. right? Um, To even get to the point where you're considering investing those types of dollars in a physical location for your business, you've been through the trenches. Now, we definitely trade some war stories. And we definitely, um, you know, um, give each other support Mm -hmm. um, so that the things that I've learned, you don't have to go through it. And um, I found some significant support among my clients um, in reference to just kind of, you know, figuring things out as we go. Because as an entrepreneur. (laughs) I understand. Let me ask you, what are some of those uh, typical questions you get, though, from from those who are ready to take that next phase. What, uh, what are some of the typical concerns they have about? Because, you know, you want to make sure you find that right space because that space is so important. You know, um, well, first of all, the biggest thing that I find um, when clients come to me is many times they're coming to me having found a space um, on their own. And while that's okay, it's a much better route for you to have a real estate broker, someone that can get in there and negotiate the terms of the of the lease, you know, that free rent period, the tenant improvement dollars. There's just so many things that go into this real estate transaction that are way different than anything you would have ever experienced renting an apartment or buying a house. It's just a totally different ballgame. So that's one of the things that I encourage all of my clients, if they get to me and they don't have that yet, to go out and get that so we can make sure that they get the best bang for their buck. And listen, we know here in the Atlanta area, because we talk about affordable housing in terms of the residential side, we've never really talked about the commercial side. So definitely can understand that aspect of it. But now, listen, you have you all are opening opening an office in the Pittsburgh neighborhood at Pittsburgh Yards, correct? Yes. Why yes. that Why I'm, that area? I think I know, but tell our <laughs> listeners. So, you know, Pittsburgh is an in-town neighborhood. Um, I live in Mechanicsville, which is the next neighborhood over, which is another in-town neighborhood. And these have been historically underserved neighborhoods, particularly in the commercial real estate space. Um, you know, lack of supermarkets, lack of businesses, lack of commercial development. Mm-hmm. And being a long-term, long-time resident as well as a business owner, it was important for Aspire to be a part of the change of these neighborhoods, particularly since we look like the historic residents that have been in Pittsburgh Yards, Mechanicsville, uh, Grant Park, and so on and so forth. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Amber Lawson. She's the general contractor and the principal and founder of Aspire Construction and Design. And she were talking about how now Amber is taking her expertise and helping other women business owners. So folks listening, because I'll get an email. Matter of fact, one just probably popped up. Okay, Rose, tell Amber I'm ready. And I'm like, okay, you heard what Amber said. Don't just. <laughs> so folks are, are, are when folks want to get in contact with you, at what stage should they really be at and what should they look at? in terms of really making sure that they're at that they're at this next level here when you talk about owning your own or leasing your own commercial space here 
You know, uh, Rose, it's a catch-22 when you're an entrepreneur. Um, Yeah, you got to have some funds available to take that next step. But a lot of times, in combination with that, you got to step out on faith because it's a chicken and the egg. You can't grow until you get into a bigger space and you may not have the fun. it's, It's just, it's definitely a balancing game. So you definitely have to have some funds in place. But I would say, you know, do what you can and reach out at whatever step. I'm willing to speak with people and let them know, like, listen, maybe you can't move into a 2,000 square foot space, but Mm -hmm. absolutely 500 square feet, let's do that. And really give them a rundown on what those numbers look like so that when you get uh, in the midst of everything, you're not surprised. Let me ask you this. What is your... I know what your goal is, but how do you see what you all will be able to do with Aspire, let's say, in in the next two to five years and helping grow what you talked about, this commercial real estate side that where it's a little bit more diverse than what we see now in the Atlanta area? You know, um, the employees that we have here at Aspire, you know, I am um, I'm a graduate of Southern Polytech State University in Marietta, Mm -hmm. and two of my employees are graduates from that school and they have an excellent architecture and construction management program. And so, you know, it's really a 360 um, process, you know, hiring people um, that are diverse to give them those opportunities as well as serving um, our clientele. Because to be honest, you know, it is a clientele that has been overlooked um, by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And Aspire is here to fill that gap and really to take that entrepreneur from, okay, you've been working out of your house. Now it's time to move into that commercial space and let's make sure you're successful when you take that step out. I have a listener who wants to know, does it, you mentioned having a commercial real estate person work with you. Listener wants to know, does that cost? No, the, um, the building owner or the landlord pays for that. So there is no detriment to you <laughs> to getting a broker on your side to help negotiate that deal. Let me ask you this, Amber, through your lens, and I know you're in the Pittsburgh neighborhood, but there are, are there other regions around the city that you think folks, through your lens now, folks might want to look at or consider in terms of the commercial space, depending on what that industry may be. Are there any sort of hidden gems that you want to reveal? Or you want to keep them hidden? Uh, <laughs> Listen, it's it's all about sharing information. We we are all trying to get to the next level. So I have to say one of my clients, um, Skyrise Property Group, they just opened a co-working um, space in Jonesboro. And, uh, you know, Jonesboro is ideally situated between the city and the airport. Mm-hmm. So if you have a business that is looking for space that is not going to be that top dollar rent that you'd be paying downtown, but you are in a really good location, I think Jonesboro is a really good place to look. What are some of the pitfalls that you think people should avoid or that are common that you want to let folks know about? You know, again, the biggest pitfall is going into that negotiation without somebody on your side. And the second is not talking to a contractor about what kind of dollars you're going to be looking at. Because people can be really surprised at the sticker on renovating a commercial space. You know, Mm -hmm. you could be looking at anywhere from 50 to a half a million dollars on a space that you don't own. So that is a very uh, big pill to swallow when you are not accustomed to operating in that space. Well, what questions do you definitely want folks to ask? Maybe if they don't have a a commercial real estate person working with them, what questions do you want folks to to say, look, this is definitely what you must ask during that first meeting with the landlord or the property manager? So really what you really want to do is you want to go to that space early in the morning, you want to go in the afternoon, you want to go at night, and you want to see what kind of traffic is coming to that space. And is your business dependent on foot traffic? And if that's the case, is there foot traffic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're not dependent on foot traffic, you still need to see what is that space like in the morning, the afternoon, the evening. And then when you get into that meeting with the landlord or the building owner, 
one of the first things you need to ask is, hey, what am I looking at? What kind of lease terms are you providing? Mm -hmm. You know, some landlords are one year, two year, and some are looking for five to 10 year commitments. So depending on what your plans are for your business, what your goals are, that may or may not align with the plans of the building owner or landlord. And finally, Amber, as we wrap up, what is your message out there to someone who's listening? Who's Now we've piqued their interest and they've been listening to you. And then your own, as you reflect on your own personal journey, what do you want them to know about, as you call it, stepping out on faith, taking that leap, taking that risk? You know, it's going to feel scary. There's going to be some things you don't know, but I promise you, if you reach out and ask the questions, I don't know how it happens, but they will come to you, whether they come to you through your network, whether they come to you in a dream, whether they come to you through an Instagram post. But it's important to put those questions out there so that you can get the answers because we want you to be successful on that first time you step out. All right. Great advice there. Amber Lawson, general contractor and the principal and founder of Aspire Construction and Design. And Amber, and again, for folks that want to learn more about the co-working space at the Pittsburgh, in the Pittsburgh neighborhood, where can they get that information? Sure. So it's um, Pittsburgh Yards, and they actually do have spaces available. They have and, space um, for a hotel for Wayward Cats, Amber? You know, you should talk to Walter. He's the property <laughs> manager. and you know, Walter's not trying to talk to me. You know Walter. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to speak for people. So there may be space for a hotel for wayward cats. I, I don't know. Amber, thank you so much for taking the time. Again, it's Pittsburgh Yards. If folks want more information. Amber, thank you for what you're doing to help so many people in our community. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can catch Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast and subscribe wherever you like. And a reminder also for today, a programming note, President Joe Biden is expected to speak at 345 today. NPR and WABE will have live coverage starting around 345. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us. WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally will cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.